0: All right, let's continue in our worship uh, by opening up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 9 through ten. For, uh, nine through 12. 1 Peter is in the way back of your Bibles. It's one of the letters that Apostle Peter writes to a church community. Uh, so every Sunday, in theory, uh, should be Commissioning Sunday, uh, but the fact of the matter is it's not. Uh, it's not true, and I want to share why it isn't. Uh, specifically for the immigrant church and for our second generation church. Um, so both my parents uh, immigrated to the states when they were in their adolescence. They came in middle school, and um, you know they came with their family with uh, families with little to nothing. Uh, they didn't speak the language. They're unfamiliar with American culture, uh, whatever that is, and they struggled to find a sense of identity and belonging. Um, as they worked for, uh, as they worked, you know, odd in jobs, my dad washed dishes at a fast food restaurant, and he drives, drove school buses, and my mom, too, just found whatever work that she could find. And so they struggled to find their sense of identity uh, living in the States. Uh, they decided to go to Seattle. I don't know why, one of the most depressing, gloomy places, but that's where they decided to land. Um, and so, but there was one place uh, for them to experience their own community their own culture, and that happened to be the church. Uh, My parents weren't Christian. They came from a Buddhist background, both of them. But someone, um, Koreans in Seattle, invited them out to church. And at the church, uh, they were able to experience uh, similar faces, smell similar smells, food that they were accustomed to. Uh, And so they went out to church, and they experienced the Korean culture, a familiar place. And, um, you know, eventually they became Christian. Uh, Christians. God saved them. And so I'm very thankful for the immigrant church, but what ended up happening uh, was the church became a safe haven for people like my parents. It was a place uh, of comfort and acceptance. Um, However, a negative consequence to this uh, phenomenon or this social kind of experiment is that uh, they became insular. Uh, They became their own subculture church became a place uh, where they can be who they are. Uh, and and it, was, it was nice. So they built a gym so that they could play ping pong together with other Koreans. Uh, they built a huge cafeteria so they could cook, cook Korean food for Korean people. Um, they also created positions and status so they can experience leadership, positions of authority that they couldn't have in their small businesses. And so this was their experience of the church. And I'm making a generalization, but I think it's true for most immigrant church that the church became kind of this sub-Christian culture uh, with little engagement with the community that they're surrounded with. Whether it's with black, Hispanic, or even other Asians, or even the white culture, there's just no cultural engagement. They were looking to satisfy themselves in the church. Now, for many of us who are children of these parents... Um, we can't help but learn from our parents and seeing how they did church, we learn from them. Their spirituality, their ecclesiology, which is a fancy word for how they did church. Um, we, we believe growing up that church is a place for me. So although the sentiments are a little bit different, our approach and attitude of the church is actually the same between the first generation and second generation Korean Americans. For the second generation Korean Americans, the church is a place of consumption. Uh, we come because we want to hear a good sermon. We come because the music is good. We come because we want a sense of belonging and sense of community. Right? We, we come because our children enjoy the children's program. Right? And if the church does not satisfy me, then I'm going to just move on to the next best church that I can find. See, the problem of the immigrant church are actually the problems of our church today. It's just packaged differently. Our first-generation parents are saying hey, provide a place that is safe for me. I want to make me feel safe. Right? They look to the church for that. For the second generation current Americans, we look to the church and, tell, and ask the church, hey, make me feel good. Make me feel good about myself. So I can't help but think, for many of us, instead of the church becoming a headquarters for missions, the church has become a weekly pit stop for our own consumption. See, the church exists for missions. We are here to commission people out into the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But rather, instead of that, we become, we've become a weekly pit stop for our own self-serving consumption. See, the church is not a place for that. Uh, we, are, we, are, we exist to grow in mission. We exist for that purpose. Now, we do want to have excellent sermons. We want to have excellent worship and praise, and we want to have a good uh, children's program. For what, for what purpose, though? It is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this community that we're surrounded by and take that same gospel to the nations. That's why we exist. And that's the ultimate aim. Is to reach, our ultimate aim is to reach others with the gospel. In our passage today, Peter is writing to a Christian community that did not feel safe. It was impossible for them to experience safety in the church because they, they were surrounded by a pagan, polytheistic, pluralistic culture and society. Most of these Christians that Peter is writing to are recent converts that are living in a hostile environment. It was impossible for them to feel safe because they stood out. They were so different from the rest of, culture, of the culture. And so what they did is they experienced persecution, opposition, People hated them. They, they talked poorly of them. And so when we experience opposition when, when, because of our faith, we do one of two things. One option is we isolate ourselves. It's just too hard, so we're just going to barricade ourselves within the church. We're going to do everything with other church members, and we're going to create our own subculture. And this is kind of the response of the immigrant church. The second response to opposition and persecution is assimilation. You know what? It's too hard being a Christian. I'm going to blend in with the dominant culture, right? Either we bail out of the world or we want to blend in with the world. These are the two dominant responses to opposition when it comes to our faith. The church that Peter is writing to took the second approach. They conformed to the dominant culture. And so Peter is writing to them, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that life. And he reminds them of their gospel identity. So how does Peter remind them? What does he say? Let's give our full attention as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from your passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Amen. So as Christians, we are called to engage with the world, but to be distinct from the world. Be involved in culture, but do not conform to culture. Now, this is one of the hardest concepts to really wrap our minds around. It's like telling my son, Deacon, hey, jump into the swimming pool, but don't get wet. Right? It's almost nearly impossible. But yet, Jesus sends us into this world for a purpose, for a mission, to renew and transform culture with his gospel. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we dive into this world and not get wet? How do we engage with culture but not conform to it? How can we be grounded in the gospel? How can we be motivated and bold to share this amazing truth of Jesus Christ with the world? Peter reminds us of three very important truths in this passage. The first thing is this. He reminds us of our status. Your status. Secondly, he reminds us of our office. The office that we hold as Christians. And lastly, he reminds us of our sojourn. Our sojourn. So first... It reminds us of our status. So our passage starts with the word but. So Peter is making a contrasting statement here. In the previous verses, Peter is describing the church and its members as living stones. We are individual living stones being built up to form the temple of God, the church. But he also talks about a cornerstone, the very crux in which the living stones are being built up into. And that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And then he talks about Jesus Christ as a cornerstone being being rejected by its builders. You can read the passage on your own. But he's saying that Jesus Christ was rejected by the very builders of the church. And those builders were the Jews and its leaders. So why why does Peter start off with this? You're living stones. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And ultimately, that cornerstone was rejected. What is he saying here? Think about it. If we are the living stone being built up in a rejected cornerstone, what can we expect in our lives? The same thing. We should expect the same thing. So, what Peter is saying here is what is true of Jesus is true of you. What is true of Jesus is true of the church and his Christians and his followers. Now, we can't move past this too quickly because what did it mean for Jesus to be rejected? What did that look like? What shape and form did the rejection take? Jesus' family rejected him. They thought he was mentally deranged. They wanted to stop him from his ministry. So he experienced rejection, rejection from his own family. He faced constant opposition, not from Gentiles, not from foreigners, but his own people and its leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. His own friends failed to believe in him. They betrayed him. They abandoned him. He was humiliated, physically harmed, mocked, and ultimately crucified. This was a rejection of Jesus Christ. What is true of Jesus is true of us. Now, that is scary, isn't it? See, our faith can yield very similar experiences in our own lives. And the fact of the matter is it should be expected. Some of us, because of our faith, We got denied a job opportunity because we refused to work on a Sunday. For some of us, our family actually rejected us because they're saying religion is a waste of time. Why are you giving your money? And so they reject us. You lose friends or significant others because of your faith and your conviction. You're falsely labeled as a bigot at your workplace because they find out you're a Christian. They think you're a bigot. And so they ostracize you, they don't invite you out to happy hour. And there are those in this world right now dying, being martyrs for their faith. Persecution, opposition, suffering is a part of the Christian life. Why? Because our Savior, the one that we are following, one that we are united to, experienced it all as well. See, there are those in this room, and there are churches in America that don't teach this vital truth. Some Christians believe that if I believe in God, my life should be perfect. I should have good health, a good career, good relationships. My children should be perfect, right? And you shouldn't expect anything less than the best, of your lo- best for your life because you are a follower of Jesus. Now, that is a false understanding of the gospel. That is false. That is a lie. And so what happens when our faith doesn't yield those good things? We think our faith failed us. Or worst of all, we think Jesus failed us right? Don't be deceived. It's promised by Jesus himself that if you are following after him, if you carry his name with you, you will be rejected and suffer. So Jane and I, we're going to celebrate um, eight years of marriage in, in about a month and a half. It's crazy. Um, we've gone through our ups and downs. It hasn't been an easy journey. Um, But we always experienced it together, and that's what marriage is, to become one, right? When Jane gets a job, right, I'm happy because that money goes into our joint banking account, right? If I get a raise, Jane's happy because, again, it's going to our joint banking account. But at the same time, when one suffers, when Jane suffers, I suffer. When I suffer, Jane suffers. Case in point, last year, around this time, I threw up my back horribly. I was bedridden for three days. Jane felt it because I was not able to help her with our two children. and She was even pregnant at that time. When I suffer, Jane suffers as well, All right? We make these crazy vows in, in marriage, right? Richer or poorer, better or for worse. What is that? What is that talking about? We're talking about we are now becoming one. What is true of Jane is now true of me. When she rejoices, I rejoice. When she suffers, I suffer, The same is true in our lives with Christ. We are profoundly, intimately united to Jesus Christ by faith. It's a mystery. We don't understand it. But yet, the Bible tells us we are united. The same. That's why marriage is such a good illustration of what our relationship with Christ should be. So, what is true of Christ then should be true of us. But these Christians, they were caught off guard. They were caught off guard because they were facing opposition. They, they were, what is this? They, weren't, they were blindsided by this persecution. And their response to rejection was, I'm going to go back to that life. I'm going to conform to the dominant culture. So Peter, explaining the truth of Jesus' re- rejection and ours, he's setting them up. He's setting them up for something greater, a greater truth. If it is true that what is true of Jesus is true of me, there's something that's even greater than the rejection that these people are experiencing. Yes, Jesus was rejected by men. Yes, you and I will be rejected. But, verse 9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But, yes, it's hard, but know your status in God's eyes. Peter is essentially asking us, what is the rejection from creatures compared to the acceptance of the Creator? What is the disapproval of man when you have the approval of God? You can't compare it. You can't. People may reject you, but God accepts you. You may be disapproved, but God approves of you. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. But in God's eyes, right? When, when, in the previous passage, Peter talks about Jesus as a cornerstone being Precious and chosen. If that's true of Jesus, that's true of you and me. Precious and chosen. We are his prized possession. See, Peter is reminding these suffering Christians of their gospel status. This is who you are. Why be moved by subjective human opinion that can constantly change when the king of the universe claims you as his own? Why? Why why be moved? See, the idol of approval and acceptance is a cruel religion. It is a cruel God. It will exhaust us. It will enslave us. There is no grace. Why is there no grace with the idol of approval and the God God or goddess of acceptance? Because it's based on our performance. Your acceptance is based upon your performance. But get this. Not everyone look at your performance and deem it acceptable. So who can you appease? This is a God you cannot appease. It cannot sustain joy for us because it's not trustworthy. We can't bank on it. But yet, so many of us, and this is my my struggle, this is my dominant idol, we crave the approval of others, thinking that it will satisfy. See, these, these Christians have forgotten this amazing truth. So, they went to the dominant culture to find acceptance, all the while forgetting about their gospel status. The lack of missional living stems from a lapse in our gospel identity. The reason why we're not missional or we're not unpa- passionate about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we've forgotten who we are, and we've forgotten whose we are. We belong. God. We are His prized possession. See, for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, your status cannot change. It is eternally secure. But what we can experience is an identity crisis. We can forget who we are and whose we are. And oftentimes, this comes from experiencing hardships and suffering and persecution. It is in moments of suffering that Satan comes and whispers in our ears, if you're royalty, then why are you experiencing this? If you're God's chosen, why are you suffering? He, he will whisper that to us, but then we can then respond saying, yes, my, my earthly suffering is temporal. It's temporary. But my gospel status is secure in eternity. See, God never promises our best life now because this life oftentimes sucks. It is broken. It's, it's full of disease, sin, sin. It's not, we're, we're living in a broken world. And so we should expect the same thing that we see our Savior experience. But the confidence that we have is in our gospel status that cannot change, that Christ himself secures for us until Christ comes back or until we breathe our last. See, we become ineffective in our witness of the gospel when we forget our status, knowing who and whose we are It's essential for us to be a missional people and a miss- missional church. So hear carefully, you are chosen. You are precious. You are his prized possession. That is who we are. The second reminder Peter gives, to, gives, gives us is telling us our purpose by reminding us of our office, our office. See, I want to take time to explain what it means to be a royal priesthood. See, in the Old Testament, God designated one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, to carry out the, to carry out the task of being a priest, right? And priests were set apart. They were made holy, and they were designated for the, the work of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is the older version of the temple, so this is, the, this is God's dwelling place. You could think about it as a church. And so these priests would have special roles and special access to God and to make sacrifices for people, to explain God's will, to explain the word. That was their task. But the funny thing is, they were never meant to, like the people of God were never meant to have a certain tribe to be a priest. It just was never in the plan. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, the fact that there was a tribe that God had to assign tells us that something went wrong. Because Israel as a nation were to function as a royal priesthood, not a certain tribe. So what happened? What happened? Sin happened. Even after God rescued them from Egypt, the, the people continued to rebel. They continued to worship other gods. So God had to set aside a certain tribe to take the office of a priest to be an intermediary, a mediator so that God would not destroy his people. So the most essential role of a priest would to be is to be an intermediary, a go-between, between God and sinful humanity. Israel was disobedient, and so the role of the priest was created, and this was not in God's original plan. See, God intended to make a nation of priests. Instead, he had to assign a tribe. To be a mediator due to the rampant rebellion and sin. So then, what's changed now? Why can Peter call every Christian here a royal priesthood? What's changed? Hebrews chapter ten, verses ten through fourteen. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away any uh, take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what's changed? Why are we all now carrying the office of a priest? It's because Jesus Christ, the ultimate, the most supreme high priest, gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, one sin for all. No more offerings needed to be made. See, under the the priesthood of Levi, every year they had to offer sins, sins of atonement for their people. What would happen the following year? They would have to do it again, constantly reinforcing forgiveness for God, to to ask God to forgive them. It was not, the offering was, every year had to be repeated. But when Jesus Christ came, As the high priest and gave up his own life, a God sized sacrifice just satisfied God's judgment and his wrath. Jesus Christ, as a high priest, paid it all. And that is why we now can experience being a royal priesthood. Every Christian here, you are a priest, you're a priest. So, what does that make me and Pastor Mike? Right? What does that make me and Pastor Mike? Pastor Mike and I, we don't have a fast pass or VIP membership that grants, grants us faster access to God or a more intimate relationship with God. Now, in the Asian culture, you want to think that, oh, Pastor, oh, Moksanim, right? I want to hear your prayer, right? I want, I want you to do this. Please, hear Peter's word. You. Are a royal priesthood. Pastor Mike and I, we don't have special access. We don't have a fast pass that we show God and He lets us in. No, you all have that. Because Christ's sacrifice was for you. Grace grants us immediate access to our Heavenly Father. Christ is our ultimate mediator, and He's sitting at the right hand of God, as the author of Hebrew tells us, and He's allowing us access, unlimited access. Intimate access. You don't need Pastor Mike and I to do that for you. Christ has already done it. See, the problem with us is we fail to realize the priesthood of Christ. We're still functioning in the Levitical priesthood, right? When we do something wrong, right, we, we just pause, right, and we try to work our way back into God's favor. Don't we do that? When we sin, when we do something wrong, oh, God, I'll make a make. A, make I'll make this up for you. That's the Levitical priesthood. That, that is a system that, that, that is flawed, that is broken, because you cannot make payment for your sins. That is why Christ came. But so many of us are still functioning in the Levitical priesthood of wanting to compensate, right, and to try to gain access and favor and blessings from God. The sad truth is, is If you are functioning in that priesthood, I guarantee you, you treat others the same way. You become legalistic. You expect people to jump through hoops. You demand things from other people to experience grace and to experience community. But that is a flawed system. Christ has done away with that system because he, as a supreme priest, paid it all. So what priesthood are you functioning in right now? Is it the Levitical priesthood or is it the supreme priesthood of Christ? So then, if we are the royal priesthood, what is our role? What should it look like? What are we to do? Right? We are to be a mediator to the ultimate mediator. We are to be the mediator to the ultimate mediator. We are the intermediary, the go-between, people that don't know the gospel so that they can experience Jesus Christ. That is who you are. That's your role and your responsibility. What is the specifics of that responsibility, though? Verse 9, second half. That you may proclaim the excellencies. Our priestly responsibility is proclamation, proclaiming the gospel. Our responsibility is not salvation. That's God's. Our responsibility is proclamation, sharing with others that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death on our behalf, and he rose again reconciling us to God. That is the message of the gospel. Right? In him, you can experience forgiveness. In him, you can experience redemption. You don't have to be defined by your past sins. You can be a new creation in Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel that we are to proclaim to the world. That's our responsibility. That's the message that we've been entrusted to. So it's the message that saves, not the messenger. Now, this should give us comfort, especially those going out on missions. We are not the Savior. We're carrying the message about the Savior. So the power is in the gospel to save, not us. So the goal of mission, then, essentially is worship. We want others to worship Jesus Christ. Then how, what's the fuel, then, to our mission? Same thing as worship. Worship is going to fuel missions when we delight in the work of Jesus Christ, when we understand how amazing our gospel status is, then we want to go and share. That's how it works, guys. Right? Mission exists because worship doesn't. And that is why Peter is wanting to stir up worship in these Christians that have forgotten the gospel status. That's why in verse 10, he reminds them of who they once were. Right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The reason why he's sharing this is they've forgotten what their status was before Christ. Sinners, enemies, wrath-deserving, hell-deserving individuals. God plucked them from hell and saved them. He relentlessly pursued after them when they weren't even looking for him. That is the gospel message. So he's saying you were once not a people, but now you are. You did not have mercy, but now you have mercy. What is he trying to do? Stir up worship, delight, joy, so that they can proclaim the excellencies of this amazing message. See, brothers and sisters, we were once alienated from God, unfit to be his people. We are deserving his judgment, but God saved us despite our sin. Despite our sin. Even while you're still sinning, he saved us. He made us into a people that we could not create for. We could not make ourselves the, 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 the people that He prized. He did that for us. This is the radical nature of the gospel. If we know this, we cannot be lackluster. We cannot be passive. We cannot just say, oh, cool. No. This is a radical change that we experience. So, first, is proclamation. Secondly, it's demonstration. As a royal priesthood, we are to proclaim, but we are also called to demonstrate. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, as royal priesthood, we are called to live set apart differently, we are, we are to be distinct from this world. Right? We, are, we, are to call, we are called to li- live distinct from this world, free of worldly passions. Right? We're, we're not bound by anything in this world. And we are to be ambitious to do good, ambitious to do good. That is our responsibility, is demonstration. So I know today is Commission Sunday. We just commissioned several individuals to go out, but I want to commission all of us today, every one of you, I want to commission you. Your mission is to your family, in your workplace, your school, your friends, every arena and space in which God has placed you in. Be a royal priesthood. When you have the opportunity, proclaim the excellencies of Christ and always do good because everyone is watching us. Lastly, P- Peter reminds us of our sojourn. I love this word sojourn because it helps us navigate and how to live in this world as Christian. Sojourn, it means a temporary stay, right? Another translation will say aliens and strangers. That's who you are as a Christian. Now, I know there's a lot of talks about immigration and those seeking asylum in the news today. Uh, and my heart breaks for what's happening. And I just want to say an oversimplification oversimpl- of, of the word can do various harms uh, to the church and to those that we want to preach the gospel to. The Bible does not command us to obey laws that are immoral and unjust. Yes, we are to honor those that are in leadership. And yes, we are to follow the rules of the land. But it does not tell us to blindly obey immoral and unjust laws that tell that it's okay for children to be separated from their parents. That's immoral. That's unjust. That's a whole other sermon, but I just want you guys to know that the Bible does not advocate that. As Christians, we should not encourage those that believe in that. But to go on. You know, there are many living in America um, trying to find their footing in a place. And this is the immigrant story. And for us who are Korean American or Asian American or uh, even if you're black, Hispanic, whatever it is, we are bicultural so we're, we're, we're trying to figure out what it means for us to be an American, whatever that means. And, and every, every group defines what it means to be an American in their own ways. We don't even know what it means, right? But we're trying to figure out and, and find a place, and we're wandering. And this can be challenging. This can be difficult. I feel neither American. I feel neither Korean. I don't, actually don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a disadvantage. I think that's that plays to our own advantage as Christians because Peter tells us we are what? Aliens, strangers, living in exile, those who are just passing through. So I don't see that as a bad thing. We are sojourners. Peter is saying, set up camp. Don't set up a home, set up camp. So live your life setting up tents and not trying to tie yourself down to a 40-year mortgage. You guys understand the difference? Set up camp. Don't set up a home here. Now, I'm not saying the 40-year mortgage is bad because I know some people have it here, but you guys get the point, what Peter is saying? You are simply passing through. Why ground yourself in a temporary resident? Why? You are a sojourner. So, D.C., what you're saying is we're just passing through. Does that mean that I could just coast? Does that mean I I could just be careless? No. Again, we have a purpose in our sojourn. What we do matters in this world, but what he's telling us is we should not hold so tightly to the world and all its pleasures that it offers because one day it will pass by. Everything that we experience, your car, your home, your job, your reputation, your status, all will pass away. But what will remain is the souls of six billion people that are living in this world. The soul will live on. There are only two destinations for that soul. One is with God in heaven, rejoicing and celebrating that relationship, or it is experiencing God's judgment and wrath in hell. Those are the only two options. So yes, you're passing through, but know that there are six billion souls that are waiting to hear the gospel message. See, it's when you think you have something to lose in this earth that our missional pursuits weaken. Right? It's when we think, oh my gosh, there's so much I can lose in this earth, in this world. If you're consumed with this world, then how can, you be a mission? how can you be missional? It's when we understand that everything is secure for us in Christ and that we have nothing to lose but everything to gain, that's when our missional fervor increases, doesn't it? We have nothing to lose. Our reputation, what? No, I'm chosen. I'm a, pri- I'm a prized possession. An inheritance or a worldly possession? No, Christ has secured for that. We have a place waiting for us in heaven. We have nothing to lose. We have everything in Christ. Please listen very carefully. The fact that we are chosen means that there are others that are chosen in this world. There are others chosen in this world yet to hear the gospel message. It might be your neighbor. It might be your classmate, your cousin, a co-worker, or a friend. Our job is not to determine who's chosen, right? That's not our job. That's God's job alone. Our job is to share the message to the chosen. So so many Christians, we get caught up in this doctrine of election thinking, oh, is that person elect? Is that person elect? That is not the point of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election tells us that God has elect out there that has yet to hear the gospel. So what that means, is he's guaranteeing success of evangelism and success of missions because there are chosen out there that have not yet heard the gospel. Our job is to assume everyone is chosen. You hear that? Our job is to assume everybody is chosen and elected by God. And so we are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to everyone that God places in our path because they might be chosen. Because again, we don't know. But there are, God promised, every tribe, tongue, nation, there are chosen out there. That's why we go. That's why we spend $30,000 to go on missions because we know that there are elect in Kyrgyzstan. There are elect in Greece. There are elect in Cambodia and Thailand. There are the elect out there. Our job is to proclaim and demonstrate. See, in the gospel, God makes so much of us. He makes much of us but ultimately for us to make much of him. He took enemies, sinners, slaves, and made us royalty, co-heirs with Christ. We can enjoy this gospel status because Jesus Christ gave up his status on that cross. He gave up his privilege on that cross as God's son. (sighs) He was one with God, but experienced alienation from God, experiencing his wrath and judgment on that cross so that we can be his precious and prized possession. Mercy was withheld from Jesus so that we can experience mercy forevermore. This is the gospel message. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are and whose you are. Our gospel status came at a high cost. Jesus gave up his status on that cross so, he, so we can experience his status. You are a royal priesthood. You have immediate, intimate access to the Father. And you now act as a mediator for those that don't know who Jesus Christ is. And we point others to the ultimate mediator. Proclaim the gospel, demonstrate it. And lastly, be reminded that we have an eternal place that is secure. There's nothing we can lose in this earth that we don't already have in Christ. Let's live this temporal, earthly life in a way that points others to the eternal life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Although we were not your people, you made us your people. Although we were deserving of your wrath, you made us recipients of your mercy. God, who are we? Who are we that you would choose us? Fill our hearts now with an amazing sense of gratitude, of thanksgiving. For we experience your grace. We are now your beloved. Help us, Lord, to live this sojourn well. Help us to proclaim your excellencies and demonstrate what it means to live a gospel-centered life as we go into this week, into our respective homes, the workplace, schools. God, that you would glorify yourself through us. Help us to be a church that is missional, that it's not just a program, but every Sunday is Commissioning Sunday. Glorify yourself. Make us more like your son. We thank you in Jesus' name. We pray.